0: Now, if you have been following the news, uh, you know that the country uh, is in a state of shock over the events that occurred at Waterglade Industrial Park in Greys in the early hours of Wednesday. Police discovered uh, 39 dead bodies uh, in a refrigeration trailer travelling from Belgium. And as the days pass, stories are beginning to emerge behind the dead faces. We know, for example, that one of the victims uh, of that tragedy is twenty-six year old Fam Fitra. In her last text message to her parents on Tuesday, she said this to them. I am really sorry. Very sorry, ma'am. My trip to a foreign land has failed. I am dying. I can't breathe. I love you very much, ma'am and dad. I am sorry, mother. Can you imagine what it must have been like for her and many other people there? Fighting for their lives as they suffocated to death in a container. What a horrible death. There are no words to describe it. Uh, In fact, we are forced to ask the question, why does God allow such Tragedies. And there are no easy answers to that. The Bible gives us answers, but there's no easy answer we can construct and say, this is the answer, you know, take it off the shelf. But as I thought about that tragedy when I read the news, and I thought about those people there dying so horribly, I realized that one thing is true, and it is this. These tragedies, they help us to see the ugliness of sin. Whatever people tell us about this world and all the good that is in it, such tragedy just remind us that we are reminded that we live in a sin-stained world. It is a ruined world. You see, when sin entered our world, death followed behind. And the truth of the matter is that death is or- every death is horrible. Every death is horrible. There is nothing good about death in of itself. Death is a thief that steals life. And such tragedies remind us of that. And yet as we think about death and the fact that we're talking about that tragedy, it reminds us that death is also an opportunity. It is an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, is death really the final word on life? Is death really all we have to look out for? That could be any of us there. I mean, one of the questions I asked, I thought about it when I heard the news, that that could be me. God could have chosen for me to be born in Vietnam or China if he wanted to. And I could have ended up in a truck at Grace. Death forces us to ask that difficult question, isn't it? Is that all we have to look for as human beings, death, or is the best yet to come or not? Is there a life after death? That is the question we are asking this morning. And we are asking it not so much because of the tragedy in grace, we are asking it because we have come to Mark 12, verse 18 to 27, that asks that question. You remember last week that Jesus is in the final week of his life, he is in the temple in Jerusalem. It is a Tuesday, just to remind you what day it is. The religious leaders have been trying very hard to find a reason to kill Jesus, and they will succeed. In killing him, but they won't find any good reason. And, and they have been sending groups to try and catch him out. The Pharisees, you remember last week, have just tried uh, with a question about Caesar, right? And, uh, and the Herodians, and they have failed. Now it's the turn of another group, the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the opposite of the Pharisees. We might call the Sadducees religious sellouts. They do not believe God is powerful. They believe that the human will dominates everything. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They only accept the five books of the Bible as legitimate. They deny the rest of the Old Testament canon as a pack of lies. They just say it's a pack of lies. And crucially, they deny life after death. Now you're wondering, why do they bother with religion? (laughs) Because, well, like most people today, they are religious, I think, for cultural reasons. But I think most importantly, like most of the prosperity teachers we see on television, they are religious because of the money and power. Because you see, the current high priest of the Sanhedrin, the religious council, is a Sadducee. All the chief priests are Sadducees. The Sadducees control the temple. And this has made them very rich. In fact, up to now, the Sadducees have ignored Jesus and all he's been doing, because frankly, they don't care about religion. But they're now upset. Why are they upset? Because Jesus, the day before yesterday, the day yesterday, on Monday, he cleansed the temple, didn't he? And because he cleansed the temple, they are not happy with him for doing that. He's upsetting their business. This is their gig, this is their show, and this come up and driving everyone out and they're losing money. And the Passover is on, that's when they're meant to make a killing, right? But, you know, make make money out of it. But Jesus is ruining this. And so they want to kill him. They've joined with their bitter enemy, the Pharisees, and they're trying to kill Jesus at all costs. And they think the first thing they need to do is to show the world, the public, that Jesus is a fool who believes in life after death. So they have come with a bizarre question. Let's read it again, verse 18 to verse 23. It's quite a classic, isn't it? And Sadducees came to him who said there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and... Died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, this question may sound very silly to us, but uh, or may even sound like bizarre. But in the Old Testament. God, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 to 10, instituted something called levirate marriage. It's basically inheritance marriages. So if somebody dies, somebody can inherit um, the family to look after them. Actually, the reason for that was, basically, it is to ensure that widows were being looked after, that children were being protected. It was basically like a social safety net, so that widows are not left sinking on their own. Uh, and if there are children in the family, actually they could be looked after as well. It's inheritance. And in fact, the culture where I come from in Zambia, uh, inheritance still is practiced in the villages. They are that sort of, I uh, don't think they got it from Moses, perhaps they did. But it is practiced, uh, that inheritance system. It's less so now uh, in, in many parts of the world because of HIV AIDS, um, for obvious reasons. You, you, you inherit your, your brother's wife, well, you know, you could die. And if somebody's dying, <laughs> I think there's a clue there, right? So many cultures have abandoned that sort of system today. But it, is, it does happen in, this, in, in the world. Uh, and it's interesting that see in the Bible there that God instituted this for the children of Israel. And uh, the Sadducees, they like this idea, so they've built a case study around it. Like I think it's a fictitious, uh, definitely problem, about this woman who keeps having this inheriting husbands from, from, from the brother's family, and they uh, keep dying. I, I don't know why the men are not running away. I mean, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> a woman like that, after the second death, I think you ought to be running. Um, but they are not. They're still there, right? Um, and I imagine the Pharisees are, you know, they have dreamed up this thing. And I imagine as they're telling Jesus this, Scenario: this case study, they must be giggling and laughing. I can imagine this example is one where every son of a Sadducee used to try it out in school against the son of a Pharisee just to show that you know, there is no resurrection. We've got it figured out. Because what they're trying to do here is they're trying to show that life after death does not make any sense. This is a reduction ad absurdum sort of argument. You know, sometimes people ask you silly questions which they know that they are silly, but they're trying to show it doesn't make sense. So, for example, when I'm sharing the gospel with people sometimes, they'll ask me, can God make, and you may have heard this question, can God make a stone too heavy that he can't lift? It's like you can't win with a question. If you say God can, right, then God, of course, is not very smart. Why would he do such a thing? If you say God can't, can't do it, then, of course, God is not powerful. So the whole idea of the question is to deny that God doesn't make sense, right? It's incoherent to believe in God, right? Anyway, I'm sure you can come talk to me about it afterwards. But people ask questions like that. You may have come questions that people try and throw at you to show that believing in God doesn't make sense. And in this case, that's what they're asking. They're trying to show that believing in the resurrection doesn't make sense because it throws marriage and institution God has ordained into chaos, and I would imagine, as I said, they are giggling as they ask this. And we, are, we think, if we, if we were in Jesus' shoes, we just dismiss them. He says, go away, this is silly. Why are you asking me a silly question? But Jesus doesn't. Uh, he entertains he, 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 he the question and answers them properly. And I think the reason he does that is because... The underlying question they are asking is still important. Is there life after death? And the disciples are listening as Jesus answers this. And I think he answers it perhaps for their benefits. And Jesus' response is in verse 24 to verse 27. Let's look at that. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason why you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, that is Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. He's is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So in that answer Jesus gives, he shares with us, I think, in this passage, um, three things that helps us understand, answer that question. Is there, is there life after death? And the first thing Jesus teaches us in, this, in his answer is that life, yes there is, life will continue for all after death. Life will continue for everyone after death. Everyone. A 2017 BBC survey revealed that one in two people in the UK Do not believe in life after death. One in two also believe in life after death. It was even this split, right? But Jesus does not live by opinion polls, right? The Sadducees will be at home in the UK, you know, given the statistics. But Jesus doesn't live by opinion polls. His position on the matter is very clear. Anyone who does not believe in life after death is wrong. That's what he says in verse 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Right? Now, Jesus telling the Sadducees that they are wrong about the resurrection, right, is like telling MPs that they do not know Brexit. This is something they debate all the time. They are into this topic. And Jesus is saying, you just don't understand the Scriptures. It's like, oh, but we look at the Scriptures every day. Uh, we just don't understand the power of God. They will say, well, we look at the power. We know, we know about God, right? And, and, but, so they will be quite shocked. But Jesus is clear. Even though they've been debating this issue, they've been thinking about it, they are quite wrong. And just in case they haven't heard it, he ends the same way, doesn't it? Verse 27. You are quite wrong. (laughs) That's wrong twice emphasized there. You see, Jesus believes, Jesus knows there is life after death. And he's saying that everyone will rise to life on the last day. Whether that person believes in God or not. Verse 25 says, isn't it? Notice how he puts it. As a matter of fact, in verse 25. For when they rise, not if they rise from the dead. Right? Verse 26. And as for the dead being raised. This is everyone being raised to life, whether you're a believer or not. According to Jesus, life after death is not down to you. It is down to God. And according to Jesus, we know it is true because God has written it on his name. That's what it means in verse 26 to 27. Look at that again. Uh, Why? How can we be sure there is life after death? Well, verse 26 to 27 tells us. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. The passage Jesus is referring to is Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, the second book in the Bible. And the encounter Jesus is referring to relates to when God appeared to Moses by the burning bush, right? And he's saying that when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he addressed himself first of all in the present tense. The key word there is, I am. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. No, he said, I am in the present tense. And the present tense is telling us, therefore, that the patriarchs are alive before God. Because God doesn't attach his name, his street credibility, so to speak. To non existent beings. Because well, if they have died and they don't exist, then they no longer exist. So why would God attach his reputation to them? That's the one thing we pick up from what Jesus has said. The other key word is the word of. It appears three times. Look at verse 26. What God says. I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, the most important thing you need to know here is that God is using the word of. Not so much to identify himself with those people. There is an identity thing going on. But he's also, he's mainly using it to show that he's committed to Abraham. He's committed to Isaac. He's committed to Jacob. The word over is more like for. So for example, who's the MP for our local area? Bexley, Ethan, and Crawford. Who is it? No one knows, right? <laughs> Sir David Evident. That means you have never had a, a good reason to go see him, right? I'm sure <laughs> you know. So Sir David Evanant is the MP of Bexley and Crawford, right? Of Bexley. But what we mean when we say that is we mean he's the MP for Bexley. He represents Bexley. He's committed to Bexley. The, the all of them works in the same way as a for, so to speak. So when God says, I am the God of Abraham, in the same way, he's saying to Moses, I will serve Israel from the Egyptians as I promised Abraham. He's saying, I am doing this for the benefit of Abraham, because I promised him, for the benefit of Isaac, for the benefit of Jacob. And of course, that raises the question, isn't it? It could only be for their benefit if they are still alive. What good is it to do it for Abraham, for Isaac, for to keep that covenant, if those people are not there to benefit from it. If, if Abraham is not going to see these st- the descendants as the stars, well, what good is it if he's, if he's dead and he's not going to ever see that? So God is saying, the promises of God, Jesus is saying, are eternal. Death cannot defeat or cancel out the love and promises of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are all alive and one day they will see the promises that God has promised them. Death cannot cancel out the promises of God. Otherwise God would not be God. right? So Jesus is saying we can be confident there is life after death because God not only says so but is attached his name. It is, life after death is about who God is. And we can be confident that there is life after death because God has said it and is attached his credibility. To it, right, and this life after death will continue, right? And we can trust him uh, for that to continue forever. Now, according to the BBC survey that I quoted at the start, one in three people who identify as Christians who profess faith in Jesus do not believe in life after death. Yeah, according to the survey, one in three professing Christians. Do not believe in life after death. Now I want you to think about that for a minute what it means. It means one in 3 people in church in churches this morning believe that Jesus is a liar who did not know what he was talking about when he said there is life after death. One in 3 people attending churches today are praying to a god they think is powerless. They are reading a Bible they think is a pack of lies. One in three people in the church attending funerals this coming week. Church funerals is coming week. Are just going to the funerals, reading from a book, lying to one another. Because that's what they believe, they are lying to one another. As they assure each other that there is life after death. Because that's what they think. They think they are just practicing lies. Because they don't believe in life after death. When they tell the corpse of their loved one that we will see you in the next life, they don't really mean it. One in three of them. One in three who profess faith think a child who's de- who-, who, loses, who dies in the womb, their life is completely just wasted. It's a waste. They think a miscarriage means nothing because in the end, there's no life after death. One in three people who profess Faith think dead victims of human trafficking like the ones we mentioned from Grace will never enjoy justice. They will never get to see justice with their eyes in the end. Because they've died, that's it. As one of the traffickers said in the newspapers this morning, it's just a lack of the draw. I want you to understand that these are people that profess that they are Christians, that attend church, according to the BBC survey. And actually other surveys have confirmed the same thing. Do you see? What we believe about life after death matters. And therefore, even in a gathered congregation such as ours, we cannot simply assume all of you are truly convinced that there is life after death. We all have to ask ourselves afresh, isn't it? What about you? Do you believe that life will continue for everyone after death? Do you believe that? Do you believe what Jesus says here? Well, I hope your answer is yes. And I hope you do not just believe there is life after death. I hope you also believe in the second truth Jesus teaches us here. And the second truth Jesus teaches us here is that life will not only continue after death, it will continue physically. Life will continue physically after death. That's the second truth according you're probably tired of this survey according to the the same BBC survey right this is interesting one in three who believe in life after death believe in reincarnation this is the population as a whole they believe in life after death yes but what they really believe in they believe that they will come back as an animal or in another form or something. They believe in something called reincarnation. Many people actually, when you ask them about life after death, what they really believe is that when they die, they'll become bodiless, ghost-like. That's why there's a lot of things happening, you know, you you drive around the pub and they're always having sort of a night of psychics because a lot of people believe life after death is just existing as a bodiless, ghost-like forever, right? See, many people, what I'm trying to get at here is this, Many people believe in life after death, one and two. But even within that group, there's all sorts of bizarre things that people believe about life after death. So when we talk about life after death, we need to be clear what we mean. What does Jesus mean here? And what Jesus is saying here is that, he's teaching us that after we die, one day God will raise us physically in our bodies and then we will be judged by God. It's important to understand that this passage is not talking about heaven as such or hell even. We'll touch on that in a moment. It's actually talking about a different event. It's talking about the resurrection. Did you notice that? The question is about that. And the Sadducees came to him who said there is no resurrection. This is about resurrection. Verse 23. In the resurrection when they rise again. You see? It's about that. It's about resurrection. That is what Jesus is talking about when he says to them in verse 24, in verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage in verse 25. In verse 26, notice He says, as for the dead being raised. You see, it's all about the resurrection, right? Now, the Bible teaches us that if you die trusting in Jesus today, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you die at this very moment, you go straight into the presence of God in heaven. Okay? But that's not your final destination. Heaven is not your final destination. Your final destination is what we read at the beginning of the church service from Revelation 21. The final destination is the new heaven, not the current heaven, the new heaven and new earth. So when you die, you trust trusting in Jesus, you go to heaven then there's a day coming when God will raise everyone from the dead and he will judge them in their physical body and then he will consign them to the eternity physically. Okay? If you die today, and for those who trust in Jesus, they're going to live with God in the new heaven and new earth, Revelation 21. Right? For those who don't trust Jesus, they're going to live separated from God in hell forever. Now, if you die today and you do not trust in Jesus, you go to hell immediately, but you are there still temporarily until you are finally judged by God. Jesus has already talked to us about hell in Mark chapter 9, verse 44 to verse 49. Okay, so I hope that is clear for everyone. Jesus is concerned at the point of the end. A time when God raises everyone from the dead and he judges every human being. And the passage I'm sure the Lord has in mind is Daniel 12, verse 2. That's why we read read this truth in In Daniel 12, verse 2. It's a passage that Sadducees would have been aware of. It says this. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, right? They shall rise, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who trust in Jesus will go on to spend eternity with Jesus in the new world, in the new heaven and new earth. Those who reject God will continue to suffer physically in hell forever. Now we are getting to the heart of what many people struggle with. People want to believe in life after death. And at the same time, they do not want to. And the reason is obvious. There is a part of us that want to believe that there's more to life than this. And we sense it every day. We know that human beings are not just the power of DNA. You know, when we see little one running around, we know that's just just a bundle of DNA. We know there's spiritual life there. They are spirit beings, aren't they? They are not just DNA. And we know we are spiritual beings. And so if we die tomorrow, we know that will not be the end. It is only the beginning. We know that. All of us know that. Not just the one in two who answer the question. But you see, there's a part of us that do not want to believe that at the same time. Because if death is not the end, then the materialistic assumptions we built our life on crumble now. If death is not the end, then we have built life on wrong assumptions. Right? If death is not the end, then it is surely sustained by God, our Creator. And we have been living for ourselves. And we must give an account to him. We know that. So what we do is we try and push this thought of life after death out of our minds. We, because we, 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 we can't contemplate final judgment. So we live without knowledge that God, there is life after death. But we live as if there is no life after death. I just want to tell you this morning, that tension within us is normal, but it's not wise to keep that tension in you. You know, it's like a person in debt ignoring letters from the bank. The letters from the bank are actually telling him, we can cancel your debt, right? But they are choosing not to read the letters. And so what is happening is interest is going up because they are in debt. But because they choose not to open the letters, you know, as a student I used to sort of not care about what sort of debt I took, you know, I, I wish I did, but I didn't use it, right? And sometimes you just don't open letters. And the letter maybe had a good deal in there, but you didn't open it. And eventually you find out, this example is from very close to home. <laughs> <laughs> then you find out, you should have opened the letters, and of course the debt is more. And many people do that with their lives. Listen, Jesus has come to offer each one of us forgiveness of sin. He has died on the cross for your sin. He wants to make you ready to face God after death. He wants you, when you die now, to go to heaven immediately. And therefore, and then to be raised to life so you can spend eternity with Him. But you're choosing to ignore that. Many people choose to ignore that. They choose just to ignore They don't want to think about it. And as a result, they remain under judgment. Because if we don't accept the offer that give, Jesus gives us, we'll perish forever. So can I just encourage you to ask yourself, Have you accepted that offer of having a new life with him? Have you accepted you are a sinner and asked Jesus to forgive you of sin, to give you that new life? Open the letter, as it were. The letter is the Bible. Open it. Turn to him. Accept his offer of forgiveness. Do not live in denial of life after death, as many people do. You can live with peace knowing that your future with God is secure. You can come to Jesus, ask him to give you a new life with him forever. And if you do that, or if you have already done that, what then does it mean for you what life after death means? What does it mean for you? Well, that brings us to a final truth, and you'll be glad to hear that. The final truth, because you don't really want to think about death for a long time this morning, but you should, you know. It's an important topic. The first truth we have learned is that life will continue for all after death. The final truth is that life, the second truth is that life will continue physically after death. And the final truth Jesus teaches us here on your outline is that life will continue differently, differently after death. When God raises us up from the dead, some things will be the same like we have now, and some things will change. Well, the place where we'll be living in the new earth, the new earth, of course, will be different. Peter says the world will be burned up and it will be remade. We saw that vision in Revelation 21. But there will also be a big change in how we live. And the big change is in our relationships. Jesus is clear that everyone will be single in eternity. Singleness is God's design for eternity. Look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like in ange- angels in heaven who are there now. You see, marriage was instituted by God as a picture of a relationship between Christ and his church. It was instituted to, to, to be sort of God's witness of, of the work of Christ to a fallen world, right? It's meant to, people are meant to look at marriages and say, oh, wow, the way the husband loves the wife and the wife gives herself selflessly to the husband and so forth, right? the way the husband is working to die for the wife. That is why God has died in Christ. Christ has given himself to the church, and we read about that in Ephesians. That's why marriage was, invent- was invented by God. That is a fundamental reason. The secondary reason is, is that God created marriage to give humanity an institution that would hold people together, help us to populate the earth, and to dominate it as it were. And all of that will no longer be necessary In the new world, in the new world, we will not marry. This does not mean we will love less, right? We will love more than we have ever loved, and we will be loved like never before. If you are married today, don't worry, your wife will not miss out on your love, right? (laughs) Which I'm sure you are very proud of, right? She will receive better love from you and from others, and vice versa. Most important is you receive love from the King of love, our Lord Jesus. Right. And that's quite an encouragement thing. Because you may be single now, and you may, in this world, you know, they make us feel like singleness, there's something wrong with it. But isn't it so encouraging that singleness is God's divine blueprint for eternity? That's amazing. It will be the norm, it's what will be. And what a glorious thing it is. And I tell people, you know, if if you're single now and you're not meeting somebody, praise the Lord. God is prepared. You'll be better equipped. You are already ready for eternity, I would say. Right? It's a wonderful thing. Marriage is, for all that society values, and for all its importance, we have to remember it's nothing more in God's design than an image that images Christ. It brings other tremendous benefits. But at the core, Is what it is there for. We are to love one another in marriage, of course. But know that institution is passing away. And here is the folly, isn't it, of the idolatry of marriages. Um, I'll move on quickly because we have an investor and we need to encourage those that 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 are married. But it does remind us, isn't it, the folly that we can idolize marriage. We can look at marriage as this thing we must have. But actually, God's vision is quite the opposite, isn't it? And we know Jesus was single, isn't it? I think that says it all, (laughs) right? Uh, That's God's blueprint um, uh, for eternity. That raises a question, doesn't it? Okay, so they will not be married, right? What about our gender, right? Does that mean in eternity we will be genderless beings? Some people get excited about this. No, 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 no. We will not lose our gender in eternity. Our resurrected Lord Jesus has not lost his gender and ethnicity. So gender will be there. Elijah and Moses in Mark 9, we are still male. There are still males now in heaven. And in a new world, there will still be males. Gender will not change. Now I know what someone is thinking, and you would not wanna ask this question publicly, would you? <laughs> the question we're all thinking, well, some of us are anyways. What is the point of gender without sexual relationships? That, that's an obvious question. Why would God keep gender in heaven in the new world, without any sexual relations? Well, the answer is that, you see, gender is not less than our biological sex. It's not less than our biological sex. But it is also more than our biological sex. Gender is a part of who we are. It affects how we think, how we behave, and how we relate to others. And God's vision is that in eternity, our biological differences, including our gender, will be perfected by Jesus. When we are transformed and put on his glorious body. Because that's what 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be shall not has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. For those of us who are men, we will be perfect men. For those of us who are women, we will be perfect women in heaven. Ladies, you don't have to worry that you put on a body like WWE. You will remain as a woman. I'm perfected in that. If you're trusting in Jesus, what lies ahead of us will be glorious, isn't it? Your life after death will not just be different. Wow, it's going to be amazing. It will be gloriously different. Every day we'll be thinking right thoughts. Every day we'll be basking in the glory of Christ. And we will put on the radiance of who Jesus is, as I showed us in Mark 9. Now, many followers of Jesus are living trying to get um, as much out of this life as possible. Many of us are. We are living trying to get out of this life as much as possible. Why do we live like this? Why do we live as if this is the only life that we have? Because that's how we live. We live like that. You live as if this is the only life you've got. Why do you find it very hard to be satisfied? Why are you always getting into arguments with your spouse? Why are you always yelling at your kids? Why are you always consistently spending more than you earn? Why do you stand in front of a mirror sometimes, in front of a full wardrobe, and say, I have nothing to wear? Why are you looking at the fully stocked fridge and say, you have nothing to eat? How nothing to eat today? Why do you always seem to struggle with envy uh, of others? You look at how others live and you wish you were like them. Well, the reason for that is, and I'm speaking to followers of Christ, the reason you are like that is that you forget this truth. You forget that God has prepared a great place for you after death. If you are in Jesus you have an amazing life ahead of you. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The Bible is talking about you if you are in Jesus. You who love him in Jesus. You do love Jesus, don't you? Well, if you do, Jesus I prepared a great place for you. The king, his heavenly kingdom's gates are wide open for you to enter. Listen, if you are in Jesus, the best is not just yet to come. The best is already guaranteed, signed and sealed in the blood of Jesus. You are in Christ now. So you don't need to ask people, places and things, things of this broken world, sin stand well to satisfy you. No, 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 you don't need that. The world is not enough for you if you're in Christ. If it's not even enough for non-believers. You see, what everyone needs in life is not a better now. You are living for a better now. But actually, what you need is not a better now. Everyone needs a brand new body. I know I need that, right? They need a new life. I want that. And they need a new world. It's not good enough having a brand new body, a new life, and still living here. They knew the new world fashioned by God himself. A world where there's no tears, no pain. That's what we need. And the good news is that if you're trusting in Jesus, you already have this. So keep your focus on this great future that lies ahead of you. In the new heavens and new earth. Is the best yet to come? That's the question. Oh, it's already here in Christ. And it's even just about to get better and better in the new heavens and new earth. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, this is what God is offering. This is why it's good news. If you trust in Jesus, if you surrender to him, you have that to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth.